Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey folks, Oliver here. This week, I am excited to share an interview with Lee Hung Nong, CEO and founder of Nimbus. Nimbus recently went public with their vehicle, the Nimbus One, in a Tech Crunch article taking them out of stealth for the last 18 months. I have been talking to Lee Hung for years and was excited to finally be able to interview him and bring a bit more of this story to you. I think what Nimbus is building is really, really important. As you'll hear here, in an era of climate change, high cost of travel and urbanization, we need lightweight electric vehicles more than ever. And I think what Nimbus is proposing solves a whole lot of the issues that people have leveled at micromobility to date. Full disclosure, I'm an advisor to Nimbus. Normally, I try and stay independent, but when I see a really cool project that I think meets all the criteria that we discuss on the show, I do try my best to help them come to fruition. Also, if you like this interview, you'll have a chance to see the Nimbus in person in September at the Micromobility America Conference in San Francisco on September 15th and 16th. We'd love to have you there. We expect this is going to be our biggest show we've done yet, and we'll include a pitch contest, test drives, city and operator panels, and more. Get your early bird tickets for an absolute song at micromobility.io. And now, here's Lee Hung. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Lee Hung Nong from Nimbus. How are you going today, Lee Hung? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. It's been a pretty hectic couple of weeks. We just wrapped up Micromobility Europe in Amsterdam and I'm on the road at the moment. But I have been very excited to see the news of the recent TechCrunch article about what you guys have been doing has been incredibly exciting. Obviously, I've been working with you over the last little while to help make that come to fruition. I'm so excited to talk about what you've been building today. I feel like what we should do is maybe just start off a little bit with like, what was the announcement? Do you want to just take me through the parts of what you were able to finally share with the world about what you've been building? Sure. Yeah. So we've been working really hard for the past year and a half on our three-wheel electric vehicle. And the news is we're sharing the new design and we just launched our pre-orders and we're going to be opening it up for test drives in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hopefully be able to announce that the first public test drives might be available at uh, Micromobility in California, Micromobility America, which happened September 15th and 16th. So for folks who are interested to come and check that out. Yeah, and see the vehicle in, in person as well. But, you know, there's obviously the fundraise as well that you were able to announce there. Is it 4.8? That's the, the number, 4.8 yeah, million? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So part of the other thing we're announcing is we raised C round of 4.8 million last year. Yeah. Well, look, I want to kind of explain maybe why I got so excited when I first met you, which was that you really weren't even building a three-wheeler at the time. I mean, you were building something that was quite different. Where it's pivoted to, I'm incredibly excited about for a whole range of reasons, which we'll get into. But can you just take us through maybe a little bit about the story? Like, where did this whole thing even start? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So I started thinking about this space probably in late 2017. And, you know, I, I realized that the current vehicles that we have are not sufficient to address the urban transportation needs that we have. So the stat that I looked at was cars are, most of the time, there's only one or two people inside them. And when you're in the city, you're not 
going very fast. So then you end up with using this big and heavy vehicle that can go up to 100 miles per hour and you end up using it for the city, which is wasteful, right? Mm. And also like 15 miles per hour on average. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think the scenario that a lot of us are familiar with is we're driving in the city and then we see a biker kind of like passing us or even sometimes someone walking, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so the original idea was a four-wheeled vehicle actually and it was an autonomous supposed to be an autonomous vehicle mm. and then um you know th that sort of evolved and pivoted into this current iteration which is a three-wheel electric vehicle that tilts mm. the part that i remember seeing because the first instance that i saw of all of this was i think you had actually sent me a youtube video of like a tilting forward wheeled single seat pod was probably the best way to describe it and it had right. this amazing capability of like the pod itself was sort of detached from the platform. So, but as you went around corners, the pod itself would tilt into the corner. So your center of like how you would feel on that ride was that you would always be feeling the G-forces down rather than like lateral G-forces. Yeah, that's right. So the original pod, the reason that it was tilting was twofold. One was to sort of make it more balanced so that we can reduce its footprint. And then the other reason was to make the ride more comfortable. And we had this suspension system that not only removed some of the G-forces, but also reduced the kind of softened the ride. Mm. So reducing the G-forces, you know, makes the ride more comfortable, but it also, you know, we, we proved it actually to reduce uh, motion sickness as well. Yeah. And we felt like that was an important thing to address with vehicles that are autonomous because people are not necessarily looking at the road. A lot of times they're going to be, you know, looking at their phone or something else. And so a lot of people would get motion sickness and tilting was a way to reduce that. And so where did you even build that prototype? So we did that prototype entirely in China. Yeah, amazing. You built this four-wheeled prototype. Clearly I saw it, I thought it was pretty cool. And I know a number of others has also have also thought it was pretty interesting. Can you talk me through the eventual pivot to getting it to a three-wheeler? So like, what was the journey for that for you? Yeah, so what started all that was, it was around 2017, 2018 at the time. So there was a lot of, thoughts about kind of, you know, autonomous robo-taxis taking over the world. And so that was the direction we took. But then, you know, as we built the vehicle and as we kind of shown it to different people, that direction didn't pan out as well. Mm -hmm. And so then when we got into Y Combinator in late 2019, I decided at the last moment to kind of switch it to something that was going to be first driven by humans and a lot less expensive. And then the three wheel was as a result of regulations in the US where, you know, if you have four wheels and you're not a car, you're limited to 25 miles per hour. Mm. And the three wheel category reduces that speed limitation. Yeah. Or not, not reduce it, but removes it. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a whole category there of part of the reason I, I like Akimoto and I've had them on the podcast a number of times has just been that the I, I mean, my, my senses, right? So, so like, obviously, we watch micromobility and I spend a lot of time looking at the space and I can see that there's this big gap that sits in there and the vehicles that are sort of larger than a motorbike but smaller than a car. And if I was to kind of apply our lens of it, it's that Horace will oftentimes talk about there's this design space that it sits in that space. You know, there's, like, design, an open gap in that 500-kilogram down category. And we think that the modular nature of electric vehicles means that people can start experimenting and building things in that space. 
and that they'll end up more human-sized. And then on the other side as well, there's, you know, the biggest complaints people have when I talk to them about e-bikes is like, yeah, but if you don't have the infrastructure, which a lot of places don't, and the weather is crap, then what you really want is, I might be open to a human-sized vehicle, but I don't want to ride a motorbike because I like my knees and I like my back and I like my arms. And I also want something that's not going to get me super wet and I have to have heaps of gear for every time I use it. And so there has been, I think, a space for something that is human-sized so it's one or two people and it's enclosed and also as well that it's narrow. So it's just like the thing that we can also see with like the Akimoto is that even when they go to putting doors on it, it's still a very wide frontal. It's got two very wide wheels at the front, which makes it the same frontal area as a car. So you can't lane split and all that sort of stuff. Can you talk me through that? Because I think the part that you've kind of identified is that there's this interesting arbitrage opportunity to build a three-wheeled vehicle that actually can satisfy a lot of the things of a car. What are the kind of core criteria do you think it is from your vehicle that allows someone who like looks at that to go, yeah, that could replace a lot of the requirements that I'd have for my car? Yeah, for sure. So I think size matters. And I think for a vehicle like this to work, it has to be sufficiently small. Mm. because if you take a car and you and you shrink it at first what you get is sort of like a smart car which is just like a, a tiny car that is you know s- still going to be stuck in traffic you still have to park it like a car but it's only when you shrink it sufficiently that you start to unlock all these benefits mm. in terms of parking and traffic that's sort of the first one the second one i would say is the pricing as well mm. for a vehicle like this to work i think the pricing has to be sufficiently low. And, you know, I think historically it's, it's been challenging to get a vehicle like this to market and hit a attractive pricing point initially. Mm. But with electric and kind of the modularity of all the different components and the ability to horizontally integrate, then you get this opportunity to, from the very start, produce a, a product that's compelling from a, from a pricing standpoint. Because mm. what's the price that we're talking about for the current vehicle? Just under ten thousand, nine thousand nine hundred eighty dollars. Yeah, we're also going to be offering a subscription model for two hundred dollars a month. Right. So two hundred two hundred dollars a month. I'm trying to think of like what's comparable to two hundred dollars a month. I think for most people that's like half of a lease payment on a car these days. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And with a car lease, it's also not very flexible. You're sort of locked into a twenty four thirty six month lease. So. Yes. Yeah. And is the idea that those would be, it wouldn't be a 24 or 36 month lease. That's just a, no, you can get the vehicle and give it back after a yep. month sort of thing. Okay. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so the part about it as well is when you say the vehicle needs to be small, can you explain based on, on your understanding of like how your vehicle works or why it's interesting, why you're able to be smaller than anybody else or like, because the sense is that I get it. So I look at, okay, so look, here's the vehicles that I see in the space that I've like, because I clearly have watched the space quite a bit. E-Carver, which is based in the Netherlands and they have a three wheel setup, but it's two wheels at the back and one at the front, but it's very long. It's like quite Mm -hmm. a long vehicle. You've got the Twizy, which was never fully enclosed, but that was also four wheels and obviously limitations to that. You have the Trigo from Poland, who just featured at Micromobility Europe, who have a four-wheeled vehicle, again, L70 in Europe. And then you have the Akimoto. And as far as I can tell, those are the sort of three slash four wheelers that I can see that are kind of vaguely enclosed or enclosed that you would be kind of thinking about competing with. Would that be accurate? Do you see anybody else who's on the horizon? Well, Toyota came out with the iRoad a couple of years ago, but I, I don't think they're doing anything with that. Mm-hmm. right now so do you know the story of that like do you know why they're not doing anything with it i believe it's because they wanted to focus 
on autonomous. Mm. And so they sort of shifted focus, but I'm not positive. Yep. Okay. So going back to those are the vehicles that I've seen in this sort of like what I would consider like heavy micromobility space that are either four or three wheels. And the three wheel, I think is interesting as well. And we'll come to that. I mean, you've made that point exactly, which is like, there's a limitation around that gets removed when you go from four wheels to three wheels. So three wheels is sort of this weird arbitrage opportunity because it's drivable as a car, registerable as a car, but drivable on a driver's license. Yeah, I think so. There's a question about the landscape. So, you know, I think like the requirement for the vehicle was that it had to be narrow enough to be able to lane split, but also short enough that you can park it nose in or tail in mm. into a uh, parking space, right? This is a side of the road parking. So instead of parallel parking, you can just kind of park nose in. And so those requirements defined our approach to how to make the vehicle stable. And also, you know, we wanted the driver to have the amount of visibility that they're used to in a car, which means we can't just you know, because another way to make it more stable is you just lower the driver's seating position and lower the center of gravity. But then you kind of get this sort of recumbent bike or recumbent trike experience where you're sitting really low to the ground. You're not tilting, but it's not a position that a lot of people are going to be comfortable with. Mm. I think you had a really good quote in the TechCrunch article, which is like, would my mum want to drive this? Because like, right, I wouldn't exactly. want to put my mum on a recumbent bike. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, yeah. and some of them have, you know, little flags so that other drivers can see them yeah, so that yeah. they don't get run over. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So, so we wanted to create something that was universal. Because if you look at the stats for who's using scooters, it's usually younger people and, and skewing towards male. Mm-hmm. Whereas we wanted to create a tool that was more of like a universal transportation. Totally. I am very curious based on the vehicle design as to who that will appeal to, because it's, it's certainly been the, of the people that I've shown pictures of it too. A lot of women have said, this looks great. This feels like a vehicle that I would be open to using or I'd be interested in using. Obviously, you've got the tilting. Can you explain, like, is there anything specific around the tilting? Like, have people tried to do tilting in the past? Like, what was the specific special secret source that you guys kind of locked or unlocked or, or, you know, that makes it work? Yeah, so I think tilting is something that a lot of people have tried all the way back, probably in in the 80s from General Motors with a vehicle called the Lean Machine. Mm-hmm. That was like supposed to be a tilting commuter vehicle. And then Mercedes and BMW also tried in the, I think, er- early 2000s to do something. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Toyota, the iRoad, and then recently with Carver and the Trigo. Mm-hmm. The way we approached it is sort of, you know, we wanted to create something that was low cost. And that meant in the end, we have a way of doing it where it's not done by wire, which is the way that some of these companies have tried to do it. Like the iRoad is, you know, I I think it's a completely by wire vehicle, which means that you need- You mean fly by wire? Fly by wire, yes. So drive by wire, like steer by wire, tow by wire. Mm -hmm. And that meant a system that had a lot of redundancies and it was going to be very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. And so with the way we do it, there are some by wire components, but also there's always a mechanical connection between the driver and and the, the vehicle so that- you end up with less redundancies and the system becomes less costly. Yes. Okay. Interesting. You know, the one that I've seen for a trigger, because it's just the one that I've just been talking to when I was in Amsterdam, I'm actually going to have them on the podcast pretty soon as well. And I'm keen to understand a bit more about how they've done it, but they've chosen to have literally like 
the two front wheels can come in really narrow. So the whole vehicle is 88 centimeters wide or the front wheels can go out. And so it's a wider stance. I think it's about 120 centimeters at speed in order to be able to do it. But as you say, it's all fly by wire, like the entire thing. I think the way that the whole system works is all fly by wire. You couldn't do it mechanically. Is there a benefit in terms of how the vehicle gets certified or like what's the certification process for any of these sort of lightweight vehicles? If you're doing a three-wheeler, for example, and you're going to be selling it into market. I think certification-wise in the U.S., so three-wheel and with some other requirements like, you know, steering wheel and safety belt, I believe, would make the vehicle into something called the auto cycle. You know, compared to a car, it's a, it takes a lot less to be able to certify it compared to a car. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the other benefits. As far as whether there's more work to certify it, whether it's, you know, by wire or mechanical, I don't think there actually is from like a legal perspective, but... Mm. You know, if you make a vehicle by wire, you have to obviously put a lot of work into it to make sure that it's, you know, it's going to be reliable Mm. when things start failing, that you always have backups and, you know, functional safety and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you see the vehicle and it is quite, it's quite striking. There's like a whole bunch of design features about it that I think are really kind of quite compelling. It's obviously enclosed, but it actually looks quite fun. And that's something that I know that you and the design team have worked really hard on. Can you talk me through the design aspect to it? Like, how have you thought, like, one, who have have you had with the design team? And then how has that worked and informed the feel of the vehicle or what you're trying to do with it? Yeah, so a vehicle like this should not only be something that's useful, but also it should be fun, right? You know, where in the city, it doesn't matter if you have like a really expensive sports car or a regular car, you can't be going that fast. So I think, you know, one, one of the reasons people choose to use something like a scooter or a bike is that it's fun to use. And we wanted to bring that as well in, into our product, not only in the way it drives, but also in some of the design elements and how you interact with the vehicle. Mm. So that was... That was important. And so to do that, there's a couple of cool design features. So one is that the front headlights and the back, it's made up of a matrix, a matrix LED, which means mm-hmm. that the vehicle can customize its headlights. And so w- one of the things we're doing is we're turning it into sort of like a personality with eyes. And depending on the you know the mood of the vehicle or, or what you're doing, the vehicle will actually be expressive. And, you know, it could be happy, it can be sad. So that's that's really fun. But also it can be used to convey information. So when the vehicle is used in a shared context, you can display things like whether the vehicle is available or mm-hmm. battery level and things like that, or the name of the operator that's renting out the vehicle. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Because I know your designer was XNIU, the Chinese electric right. moped manufacturing company, which I think has one of some, some of the most kind of distinctive e-moped designs. Like it's the one that they use... Almost all the e-moped sharing companies around the world use Neos. And so, yeah, it was interesting that that person ended up obviously working for you and and doing that. And you can see the talent, uh, I think, coming across there. So you kind of mentioned sharing, and I am kind of curious with that. I would love to dig into that a little bit. So how are you thinking of of obviously getting these to market? You're talking about it as being something that's like, it's a big sold. People can buy the vehicle or they can get it on a subscription or there might be the possibility of sharing. Is there expectations for you in terms of how you're thinking about how much the vehicle will end up into each of those different channels? Or have you, you're just sort of waiting to see how the market responds? Yeah, I think most of the vehicles will end up belonging to someone, whether they own it or they're renting it for the entire time. You know, I think to have a vehicle that you can depend on for your commutes and for your travels, you, you sort of need that vehicle to be available to you all the time. 
And at least that's the way it's looking like right now. So yeah, we, we think most of our vehicles will end up either being purchased or being rented out or subscribed by you know, private individuals. And then some portion of that of the fleet will also be shared. Yes. I'm curious as to how operators like shared operators like Tier or Lime or Bird or any of these others might want to pick up these vehicles. Certainly the ones that I've talked to have been, I think, interested in this idea of a covered small vehicle that they can rent out in cities because I just think that there's it offers them another vehicle to be able to offer to people to rent. And yeah, mopeds have done very well in, in certain particular geographies like uh, Europe and things like that as well. This one I can see. What are the big kind of challenges that you can see of like where this will get adoption and where this won't get adoption? Like why would it and then why wouldn't it if you had to play the devil's advocate of your own product? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've thought, yeah. I've thought a lot about that. So yeah. <laughs> it saves people time in terms of yeah. traffic and parking. It saves people money, whether that's with parking or insurance or just the cost of the vehicle itself. And then why wouldn't people adopt it? You know, I think, I don't think our vehicle will be suitable for every city or, or every place. Totally. So if we just, just go back to that really quickly, so capacity and speed. So it's, it's a technically a two-seater. You can put another adult in the back or a small child in the back. And you have, a, the one thing I noted from the press release, you have isofix. Uh, so you can put a child seat in the back as well, which I think is also quite an interesting design choice. Yep, that's correct. Um, yeah, and then in terms of speed, you can go 50 miles an hour, is that correct? 50 miles per hour, yep. Yeah, so that's 80 k's an hour. Okay, cool. All right, thanks. Sorry. Just yep. important clarifications that I didn't <laughs> make in the beginning. Yeah, there, yes. there's also actually a place in the back for a rack. So if people want to put extra luggage in the back, sort of like a bike rack, they can attach bags to the back. So that just increases the amount of cargo capacity for people that want that sort of thing. Excellent. I guess the the other question that I'd have around it is how cities will adopt this. So one of the things, as you say, it makes sense in places where parking is constrained. The question then is then where is parking constrained? Because I think a lot of downtown areas like deep urban transport areas, which is where obviously our thesis of where micromobility is going to be important is, you know, we want to have more dense cities. It's better for the climate. It's better for everything. It allows for more economic activity, et cetera. And yet a lot of people are still quite dependent on cars and live like out in the burbs and where this wouldn't necessarily, you know, if you don't have a parking street, you're probably not that fussed about it. But the cities, you know, the other thing that I can kind of see that would be challenging is that within a city, we already have motorbike parking in a lot of cities. Like I, I, I mean, I, I'm just looking at the cities that I've spent a lot of time in and oftentimes it's not charged. So it's not, it's, it's free, but there's always, it's, it's always got capacity issues. And, you know, your idea that you can park something directly into the curb, it's like, it's cool until it's not cool anymore because, you know, you've parked between two cars that all of a sudden can't get out anymore because they needed yeah. the base to drive. So I can see that there would be cities saying, you know, like, hey, that's really cool. We'd love to have these vehicles in the city, but we don't have any parking infrastructure for it. Like we, you could maybe park them in car, like motorcycle parking, but all of our car parks are normal car sized. Right. Are you expecting cities to necessarily build dedicated parking or better parking situations for adopting this type of vehicle when i say not only yours because i'm also thinking as well there's going to be you won't be the only one there'll be other vehicles that emerge that allow for this to happen san francisco to give an example right there mm -hmm. are metered spots on the side of the road you know they've drawn the spaces and it's like okay mm -hmm. one vehicle goes here another vehicle goes here and those spaces are car sized Right. Yes. So, so in those circumstances, unless we get some, some, you know, special allowance like Rebel has done, where you can park mm -hmm. kind of in between those spots, then there's not 
that much of an advantage or any advantage. But then there are also less defined parking in the city as well, where, Mm -hmm. you know, you can park in between basically where there's no uh, driveways, whether that's from a house or like a commercial building. And there are those spots where you can't park with a car, but you, you can with a much narrower vehicle, like a motorcycle or one of our vehicles. Yeah, you can see it, well, like, again, not that I think Amsterdam is, Amsterdam is, is one of those places that totally spoil you if you're an urbanist, because they have this little car there called the Beetle, which is a two-seater side-by-side car, but people park them directly into the curb, but they park them everywhere, like small enough to be inoffensive. And right. I think there's an element of, I can see a vehicle like yours, if it's fun and it's kind of cute and it's inoffensive, that there would be probably a little bit more lenience, especially if there's sort of places that are small enough that you could probably get away with it. And it'll just be interesting to see what consumer adaptations will adapt. So this vehicle space of kind of that small single seat or single double seat vehicle, like there was not only you guys as well, because the other one I was also thinking of, which I forgot about, was the Parabes Auto Tracer. They're from Switzerland. They make a cabin motorbike. They're very big. I mean, we're talking probably three and a half meters long or something. So you can't park them into the curb. They're built actually as a cabin motorbike from the get-go. You ride them and they they did an electric version, which won the DARPA award for most fuel efficient means of moving people because their two wheels are incredibly aerodynamic. But like, why have these vehicles not succeeded to date? You know, like this is the one thing that I'm I'm very bullish on the space. Uh, like I think heavy micromobility is an incredibly exciting area. I think we're just waiting for a breakout hit. I feel like we're going to hit. Uh, you are possibly it. I don't know. Why do you think they haven't traditionally succeeded? If you were to like make that assessment. Yeah, I think it's a combination of different factors. So the, the why now? The first one is pricing. You know, it's been very challenging, especially with gasoline powered vehicles to be able to hit a price point where it's going to be attractive as a urban transportation tool and not just like a toy, right? Like a mm-hmm. expensive toy. And I think the catalyst is electric, but also just the way that the supply chain has turned out. You can, you know, get components and parts of your vehicle from different places and be able to hit a price point that's attractive. So price point is one. Price point is one. Yeah, for sure. I think technology is is another one. So vehicles like the Mono Tracer, that is basically just a motorcycle with that's enclosed and with landing gears, right? Yes. And the way you drive yeah. a, a motorcycle is totally different than how you would drive a car. And it takes a lot of time to be able to learn that. And even people who've you know ridden there for years, it's not like completely safe. And then also if you you know if you lose traction. Mm. On a motorcycle, you you tend to just fall on the front yep. wheels because the for a for a motorcycle, whether that's one wheel or two wheels in the front, if you lose traction, that's actually what's used to keep balance for the vehicle. So you'll just fall over if you lose traction, and so that mm. means you have to be really careful when it's raining or or snowing. Whereas, you know, with our vehicle and some of the other vehicles like Carver, there's a steering wheel and it's driven like a car, so it's more intuitive to the average person. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also something to be said for cabins in terms of safety as well, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I look at that and just go, for all the reasons, I wouldn't want to ride a motorbike, certainly not in traffic. But the idea of having an protected, is it as safe as a car? No. Like you can't kid yourself that it's actually going to be as safe as a car, I don't think. How heavy is your vehicle? Less than 375 kilos. With the batteries? With the batteries, yep. 
yeah okay right so so like and then i think trigo is like just under 500 so it's like you're still up against physics which is like if you get hit by a truck you're still being hit by a truck you know <laughs> it's like you know but relatively speaking it feels to me like safer than a motorbike so yeah, you've got kind absolutely. of a lot of the convenience of a, of a motorbike uh, some level of safety compared to a car you know relatively i just think it's all on a spectrum of this stuff and i just think that what we're going to see is and part of the reason I'm excited about what you've built has been that we haven't yet had anything that has all of that kind of combination of things. And on the spectrum of things, I think people are just going to make that risk calculation and say, okay, so it's not like perfect, but maybe we've been overserved in the car space. We don't actually need all that safety that right. we've got in and, the car. And I think the way we look at safety, there's different aspects to it. You know, there's the crash safety. So that's one aspect and that you can solve or make better with heavier vehicle structure airbag which we'll have and then there's the driving safety like how you know with a motorbike like how much are you in control of the vehicle so mm. for our vehicle that's much much better there's also visibility right so like how aware of other vehicles are of you and of your vehicle and with a motorbike it's, it's been shown that because of the kind of the silhouette of the vehicle car drivers don't notice motorcycles as much because the silhouette of a motorcycle is just sort of confusing and they don't see mm -hmm. like an object. So when you enclose a vehicle, you, you provide this silhouette that makes you a lot more visible to other drivers. And also like our vehicles, you know, very unique looking. So people are going to pay attention to it mm -hmm. and not, you know, cut you off. And then there's also the context in which you're using the vehicle, which is a lot of the dangerous accidents happen at higher speeds and on sort of like country roads late at night or, or early in the morning. And so mm -hmm. if you're using this vehicle in a context where it's like you're in the city, you know, your average speed is 15 miles per hour. You know, we believe with the amount of safety we have, that's that's going to be like, yeah, sufficient, as you said. I'm really curious to see how it does things like pre-orders and, and that sort of thing as well. Hey, I want to change tack a little bit, which is how are you thinking of manufacturing it? You kind of mentioned that, you know, one of the things obviously that's interesting about the space has been that they've got relatively modular componentry that we're starting to put all of these things together i call what i think you've done part of the cambrian explosion like when you all of a sudden have really modular parts you just have heaps of people experimenting with different types of stuff and so you get things from, from like the one wheel through to what you guys are building through to like even crazier stuff how is that flowing through into how you're thinking about manufacturing is it easier to manufacture this compared to for example a gasoline car yeah for sure i think you know aut automakers are actually pretty horizontally integrated in the sense that they depend on suppliers for a lot of their parts, but they're still making an engine and they're putting together the body and, you know, painting it and welding it. Like an auto plant is still a very large piece of investment. So for us, we will at least initially contract manufacture the vehicle. You know, our vehicle design uses polymer panels for the outside, which means right. we don't have to invest into, you know, stamping class A surfaces. And that just makes the you know initial investment a lot less. All the different components will also source from different suppliers. Mm -hmm. Contract manufacturing, I think, is certainly very interesting. Horace, I remember, went on a very long, deep dive around contract manufacturing and why was the auto industry like it was when he was doing the Sim Car podcast in 2014, 2015, 2016. And he spent a long time talking to like the folks at Steyr and Magna. And I think he was kind of interested in this idea of what was the structure of the car industry that made it more default towards OEM producers 
and that car makers ended up doing a lot of their own manufacturing. Why wasn't there more contract manufacturers that existed? It turns out there are. So like Porsche, for example, like contract manufactured the, the Boxster for a while in Europe and others. I mean, has there been a big market? Like where are you seeing the options for contract manufacturing in micromobility? Yeah. So for micromobility, a lot of that will be in Asia, whether that's China, Taiwan, or Southeast Asia. We're talking with a few of those people right now about doing contract manufacturing for us. Cool. This part of your journey, like you're at the point now where you've raised your seed, you've managed to build a pre-production prototype, which is like, in my view, like having spent time in the space, there's a lot of money that gets put into vehicles. And certainly from an OEM perspective, you've managed to raise with only 4.8 million to get to a pre-production prototype that's like very cheap comparably than what you'd see for a lot of manufacturers. What's the stuff that's kind of hard at the moment that, you know, like we've got a lot of people who are, I imagine, kind of interested in you and the story and what you're trying to do here. Take me through the parts that you found challenging in the last little while. And like, is there anything where if folks were listening to this and wanted to help you, like what is the stuff that you need help with? Yeah, I think getting the technology to the point it is today has been pretty challenging. You know, this is a problem that a lot of the major OEMs have have tried to solve and, you know, in our opinion, haven't really solved in a compelling way. And when so, you say technology, you mean tilting tilt, or you right, mean... Right, tilting, the, exactly. Yeah. Yep. That, that, sure. That's the part yep. that's that's really challenging. And it's, it's sort of the thing that unlocks the benefits of our vehicle, which is it has to be sufficiently small. Going forward, as we start to manufacture the vehicle, you know, obviously that, there's going to be challenges around there. So we welcome folks, whether that's contract manufacturers or suppliers or people who are interested in joining our team, think they can help us, feel free to you know get in touch with me. Yeah, I think that's the main challenge moving forward. And take me through how you think about fundraising. So obviously you've managed to raise that first amount where like it's a tough funding environment, I imagine. Feels like it's a tough funding environment. Like everybody I'm talking to who's in the sort of pre-revenue hardware space building, I think some of the really compelling and interesting vehicles. I'm very excited about it, but it's also general market conditions seem to make it challenging. Like how are you thinking about it? You're obviously, yeah, Yeah. how you think about it? Yeah, so we're going to be raising a Series A to bring the vehicle to production. And that's going to be happening, you know, we'll start that later this year. You know, I think you said it pretty well because of the macroeconomic conditions. It's, you know, we, we foresee it's going to be challenging to raise money for something that's at least perceived as being high capital cost and pre-revenue. We do think with the you know excitement we've, we've seen around the customer side, the traction side with pre-orders and with enterprise customers, we're going to be a pretty compelling case. And we've already had some really good conversations with strategic investors. So whether that's suppliers or partners or customers, those conversations have been going pretty well. For me, when I look at the general context of where the world's going, so, you know, hey, we kind of recognize that like micromobility is going to be a thing. Like city people, people want to live in cities and they want to have vehicles that are smaller. And then we also recognize that people are going to be doing more and more stuff towards driving for like lower emissions and transport. And oftentimes, I mean, this is the work that Horace and I have been doing around how does micromobility help save the world? It's really like, we are not going to hit our emissions targets using the same size cars of what we have today. Like if you just, we've got a billion cars on the road, we're going to have 2 billion in a couple of years. Those vehicles that are going out can't have the same, uh, they need to be really low emission. 
and like the sense that I get as well is that you're like one third the emissions of this it's like standard model three if you're you know based on your calculations yep. if you're looking for something like a vehicle that like helps to radically reduce emissions this one should be the one the vehicles like this I mean this you it's the triggers it's the e-cab it's the whoever else in my mind you guys should be getting all the state support and uh, capital that like OEMs get because you cannot see it I mean this is where Horace and I really agree is that the incumbents do not want to play in the space. And you can see it because Toyota had the iRoad and decided not to build it. Peugeot had a, oh, Peugeot, they also did a tilting four-wheeler study in 2016. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, it was like the, the EU Live or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But it was a tilting four-wheeler, which did all the same things that you talk about, which is like it pulls in and it was done as a study that was funded by the EU for low emissions vehicles, but they never built it. And and my whole thing is that I do not think the incumbents will build these vehicles, right? So like the OEMs will never go and build this thing because they will consider it, look at it and say, that's way too low a margin. We're not interested in that thing. So it's kind of literally incumbent on the startups to be the ones to do this. You know, in, in that regard, it's it's we require you to succeed and to be able to get through. So I'm certainly very willing to help anybody who's trying to build something in this space to try and get to fruition here. Because I think once those vehicles like yours and, and others come through, I really think there'll be a step change. Like if you can buy one of these vehicles for the price point that you're talking about, I just think it's going to be such a compelling option for so many consumers, which is, hey, it's not their first car, but as a second car, it would be a really viable option. I'm so excited for what you're you're trying to do. I, I just like hats off to you. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you pointed to the big trends right now. Urbanization, that, that's a big one, right? Obviously emissions and climate change, that's something that that's also driving towards a solution like ours, where if you if you just turn cars into electric, it's not enough to solve climate change, but it also it doesn't do anything for traffic. Yes. And yeah. even with autonomous vehicles, unless you get like 100% of the vehicles that are autonomous and can coordinate with each other, it's actually going to make traffic worse, I believe. So mm. you know, that doesn't help either. And if you look at developing countries, especially in, in Asia, where a lot of them are using motorbikes and scooters to commute today, we believe there's a really good market there because as those countries develop, I think a lot of people are going to be looking to have a transportation tool that's more comfortable, you know, something with AC and protects you against the rain, you know, safer, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's just simply not enough space in like Jakarta, for example, to get everybody from motorcycles to cars. Totally. Right. And, you know, a good example of that is I grew up in Beijing where, you know, when I was young, everybody had bikes and that was kind of fun. But then when people started to want cars, they had to actually demolish buildings to build roads. And mm. that's just not going to be possible everywhere. So, yeah, I think we're headed in the right place. Yeah. I know we talked about the design, but I just want to come back to this as the final point, which is that, you know, making something cool, the notion that you have eyes and that they smile and then there's an L- matrix LED and that the entire front of the vehicle actually looks like it's smiling. I just think is so... Horace and I both noticed this when we were in Amsterdam is that we feel like there's been a shift that's happened in micromobility and micromobility design in the last probably year which is that people have really cottoned on to like the idea that these need to be objects of desire. Like I think what we've worked out in the early days of micromobility was that the story was these are really compelling vehicles and they have high levels of utility. And I think that we've really been very successful in the utility thing. Horace, I think, has been on about this as well, which is we sell smiles, not miles. And the part that I think you've managed to nail really well with this particular kind of vehicle is just 
people look at it and say, I want to be seen in that. We haven't had that. You, I look at a lot of the developing markets that I got pushback from Michael Dunn from Sozogo when I had the interview with him and he just said, look, nobody in China is going to ride an e-bike. If you've made a lot of money, you do not want to be seen on any bike. You want to be seen in a Porsche or in a, in a thing. And I think there's something novel about this vehicle that looks cool and not kind of like it's, it's quirky and it's fun. And I think there's an element of like, if that can be positioned as a premium signal in the market, then I think there's obviously like a lot of benefit for the social signaling monkey, monkey brain aspects of human beings for being able to shift us to better, better transport options. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we spent a lot of effort in making the vehicle not only good tool, but also cool and fun, right? And the mm. doors are actually also really cool. They're utilitarian and cool, right? So we've designed what we call sling doors, which is it's a combination of slide and swing. And they're designed so that you can park really close to another vehicle or to the wall and still be able to get out comfortably. Mm. But they also look really cool. It's like they do look pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Sweet. Well, hey, I thank you so much for making the time to come on. I've been wanting to interview you for a really long time. It's a real pleasure to have you on and be able to chat about this. For folks who want to track you down, you're not on Twitter, I take it. So, uh, how I'm would not. they find you? Yeah. On, yeah it's on, probably on a good, good thing yeah. for your productivity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Li Hang Nong. Okay. Excellent. Yep. Awesome. Hey, well, look, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for this. And uh, I look forward to having you on in the future as well when you have some more exciting news to announce with everyone about what you're doing. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you, Oliver. No worries. Cheers. All right. Take care. Bye.